Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Loss of kidney function and kidney disease has been recognized for decades and is more likely to occur in older adults over age 60. Possible treatment modalities include kidney transplantation, a surgery done to replace a diseased kidney with a healthy kidney from a donor. Today, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Verbesey, Director of the Living Donor Kidney Transplantation at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital Transplant Institute. She will talk about kidney disease in older adults, including signs and symptoms, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention. She will also talk about kidney transplantation, including donor and recipient evaluation, compatibility, and eligibility. So welcome, Dr. Verbesey, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, I always like to start my interviews with a little bit of an an anatomy and physiology lesson and help us understand where are our kidneys in our body and what is their function? So you have two kidneys, at least The vast majority of us are born with two kidneys. And um, you can think of them as kind of located in your back um, and up and tucked under your rib cage. Um, They're difficult to palpate or feel. um, And you can think of your kidneys really as a filter for your body. So blood comes in through the kidney. It gets filtered, and so some of the waste products that your body produces get filtered out into the urine, and the rest of the blood gets recycled and sent back to your um, body to use. So um, really, that's the best way to think of your kidneys as a filter within your body. As I mentioned in the introduction, we talked about kidney function decreasing with age. Is that normal? Yes, it's very normal for kidney function to decrease with age a little bit. Um, As you get older, as you know, most things in the body don't work quite like they did when they were 24. And so as you get older, you start to lose a little bit of renal mass. And also the working um, part of the kidney are called nephrons and glomeruli, and you tend to have less of those functioning. So as I mentioned, the kidney is a filter, so that filtering ability goes down a little bit as you get older. Also, as you get older, other things that might be going on in your body, so if you have diabetes or high blood pressure, those things have been kind of wearing down at your kidneys over time and also can cause some trouble with blood flow to the kidneys. So as if those other diseases are present, then over time and as you get older, your kidney function can go down um, a lot quicker. Um, But even if you don't have any 
diseases or illnesses outside of um, the kidney, your function does go down slightly as you get older. Usually they estimate um, just a small percentage per year after the age of 30. And um, about a third of people won't see any change in their kidney function. About a third see very mild change. Um, but it's that other third that sees significant change that we want to be aware of. I was just wondering if anything in terms of like lifestyle or heredity or any of those other factors either could be causes of kidney disease or risk factors. What would, you, what would we need to know? So by far and away, the biggest risk factor is diabetes. So people who have diabetes have a much higher incidence of kidney disease and also um, high blood pressure or hypertension. And a lot of times all these things go together. It's hard to know which came first, um, but diabetes and high blood pressure are the leading causes of kidney disease. Um, those two diseases are very prevalent in African-American communities, and that's why um, in the D.C. area we tend to see a higher rate of kidney disease um, because, as I mentioned, there's a high rate of diabetes and high blood pressure. Then there's also just intrinsic kidney diseases like polycystic kidney disease or other diseases that actually come from the kidney themselves. Those are a little less common, um, but still can be the cause of kidney failure as you get older. If like a parent or somebody in an earlier generation had kidney disease, might that be a factor? Yes, definitely. So there are some genetic causes for kidney disease, like polycystic kidney disease is one of them. That's where you get these kind of huge cysts in your kidneys, and also sometimes they can get cysts in their liver as well. Um, and that tends to definitely run in families. Also, uh, diabetes and high blood pressure runs in families. So although those are not primary kidney diseases, that's why you're going to see a lot of kidney disease in families that have those two problems um, going throughout their generations. So there's definitely a part of genetics or inheritance, like you're mentioning, um, that increases the risk of getting kidney disease. And the other thing that I mentioned a little earlier, and I just wanted to make sure that people or listeners understand that would be like lifestyle. I mean, maybe in terms of obesity or alcoholism or smoking, just wanted to make sure that we covered all of the, of the possible factors of causes of kidney disease or risk factors. Yes, um, lifestyle definitely plays a role. And mostly it's uh, a mitigating factor in terms of getting diabetes or high blood pressure. So if you are prone, if you're pre-diabetic and you're not controlling your diet um, and you go into full-blown diabetes, you are definitely increasing your risk of getting kidney disease in the future. So a lot of it is controlling and certainly um, high blood pressure. If you're very overweight, you have a much higher chance of having blood pressure be a problem. A lot of people, if they lose weight, they can actually get their blood pressure under control, maybe even without medications. Um, it's being aware of going to a physician once a year to get an annual checkup so that if you do have high blood pressure, that you're not just ignoring it, but treating it. So there's definitely lifestyle components. I mean, there is a part of kidney disease that like we said, is genetic and it doesn't matter what you eat or drink um, that it's going to come. But there are certainly a lot of risk factors, like we mentioned, blood sugar control for diabetes or blood pressure control for high blood pressure that are going to influence a lot how bad and how quickly the kidney disease happens. 
Okay, well, let's go into signs and symptoms. Uh, what would be the most obvious uh, signs and symptoms of acute kidney failure? Well, probably the worst thing about kidney disease is that there are not a lot of signs and symptoms that you're going to see early on. So usually kidney disease is, is um, realized through looking at someone's labs. So if they go to a physician annually to get a checkup, um, they're almost always going to get just a basic panel of labs, and that include, includes something called the creatinine and the BUN. And that's just basically looking at a protein and how well your kidney is clearing that protein from your body. So if it's not clearing it as well, your creatinine is going to start to go up. Um, so the first sign of um, kidney disease is usually labs. And that's why we always encourage everyone, especially as you're getting older, to have an annual visit with a primary care doctor. Um, once kidney disease gets more progressively um, serious, then you can start to see more symptoms. Like I mentioned, a lot of times people's blood pressure gets hard to control. And even though blood pressure is also a cause of kidney disease, it also can come from kidney disease. So um, high blood pressure and kidney disease are very interrelated. Um, and then when someone develops edema, which is like swelling, so if they get swelling around their eyes or swelling of their legs, that's really a late sign. Um, and also if you have any urinary changes, that's a very late sign as well. So we want to try to pick up kidney disease a lot earlier than that. Um, and this, it's one of the hard things about kidney disease. There aren't a whole bunch of great symptoms that you're going to be able to pick up early on. Um, but if you do catch them later, then you really need to have some attention because that's usually um, further down the road of kidney disease itself. As I was preparing these questions, I read something about glomerular filtration rate, <laughs> GFR. That's kind yeah. of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Explain to us what, what is that? Sure. So your GFR is really just a calculation based on that protein I said before, the creatinine. So it's just a number that we use to track kidney function. Um, and it tends to correlate well with the need for dialysis. So when someone's GFR is is I mean, normally it should be at least over 80, um, it's, but GFR will go down as you get older. So um, when you're in your 70s or 80s, a normal GFR might be in the 70s. Um, so, but that's okay. You can live perfectly fine with a GFR at that, at that level. Um, usually we look for the GFR to get below 20 when we start to think about transplant or dialysis or even lower, maybe 15. It all depends on how what someone's feeling. There's not just, we don't, do things just based on a number. So um, when you get to that low level of 15 or 20% of function, then we also see um, the kidney is very responsible for balancing your potassium. So are you having problems with your potassium? And also the kidney, and I didn't mention this before, but it's it's very responsible for your fluid balance in your body. So if your kidneys aren't working and you're not making urine, you're going to blow up like the Michelin man, right? You have no way of getting rid of all that fluid, even though you keep taking fluid in. So um, we look for signs like that. If someone's uncomfortable, if they're getting having a lot of swelling, if their potassium is high, if they're having other lab abnormalities, and that's when we use the GFR to decide if someone's going to have to go and start dialysis or talk about a transplant or other options like that. And is the GFR, is that a blood test or how, how is that? I was just curious. It's a calculated 
number. So based on your creatinine and your age and your body mass, they, they can um, calculate your GFR. And so, yes, it's a number based on lab values. But it's a blood test? Yes, okay. it's a blood test. Yeah, yes. I was just wondering in terms of just taking a blood specimen is how a, a lab personnel would measure that then. Yes, it's a blood test. I mean, there are things we look at in the urine, but most things that we tra- track on a you know monthly or whatever time um, period you're looking at, it's mostly a blood test. Okay. So you've been talking so much already about diabetes and also high blood pressure. I was wondering, is there anything that really can be done to prevent further kidney damage? What do we or physicians tell their patients so that they don't have to move to the next step of dialysis and kidney transplant, which we're going to talk a lot about, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about prevention. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we don't have a perfect answer to this. Once you start to develop kidney disease, we monitor it closely. There are a number of experimental treatments that can try to slow it down. Um, The most important thing we do is control the risk factors. So if you have diabetes, you know, you have to make sure that you're controlling it well. You cannot, um, sometimes that can be very difficult, but that can mean, you know, checking your blood sugar several times a day, making sure you're taking insulin appropriately, thinking about an insulin pump if you need that. I mean, it basically just taking good care of yourself, um, making sure that your diabetes is not out of control. And the second thing, just in a similar vein, is your blood pressure. You know, it's, it's, not the end of the world, I guess, to have high blood pressure, but if you ignore it, it could be a much, much bigger problem. So you want to make sure that you're taking appropriate medications that can control your blood pressure. And like you mentioned before, just healthy lifestyle. I mean, there's there's an aspect of kidney disease that you're probably not going to be able to prevent from progressing no matter what you do. It's, you know, it's inherent in the kidney, but um, certainly healthy lifestyle, preventing obesity, um, making sure your diabetes is treated, making sure your blood pressure is treated, all of those things might at least delay the progression of your kidney disease. Okay. Well, then let's move on to uh, what is really very much associated with uh, kidney disease, and that's dialysis. So in the process of evaluating an older adult, say, who has chronic kidney disease, at what point might this patient then be eligible for dialysis? And are there different types of dialysis? I I think sometimes we don't know very much about dialysis. So help us understand exactly what dialysis is. So dialysis, most simply, you can think of it, like I said before, your kidney is a filter in your body. The blood goes through and it filters out some of the waste and then recycles the rest of it. And literally the dialysis machine just acts the same exact way, but outside of the body. So the blood comes out of your body, it goes through this external filter and then is put back into your body, hopefully minus any of that waste product that you wanted to get rid of. 
Um, so dialysis is an amazing tool that we have if someone's kidney function has deteriorated to the point that they need that help. Um, but it is a very difficult way to live. So there are different kinds of dialysis. The, the primary method that a lot of people use is hemodialysis, which is what hemo means blood. So that's what I kind of just described. The blood comes out and goes through that machine. And most people have to be hooked up to the machine for at least three or four hours, at least three times a week. Um, so it makes life difficult. I mean, it's hard to work. It's hard to travel. It's hard to do a lot of things if you need to um, be hooked up to a machine like that. And also, of course, that means a needle has to be put into you three times a week, and we can have problems with that access. Um, you can be prone to infections, and also you're prone to more cardiac or heart disease while you're on dialysis. Um, so although dialysis is a great tool, it's, it is very difficult on people. Um, you can do hemodialysis at home. Some people do that. And the other kind of dialysis that you would mostly be referring to is called peritoneal dialysis. Um, the inner lying of your ab abdomen or your belly is, is basically porous and can also act as a filter. Um, so peritoneal dialysis means they put a little catheter in into your abdominal cavity and you fill it up with fluid at night. And um, the, like I said, the lining to your abdomen acts like a filter and you release the fluid in the morning and that also can act um, as a dialysis method. Um, it's a little, sometimes it's a little easier on people because they could do it at home, they do it at night while they're sleeping, um, but it's also difficult. You have to have a machine, it's hard to travel. Um, unfortunately, that fluid is also prone to infection because it's going in and out of the body. And so dialysis, like I mentioned, it's, it's great. It keeps people alive. It's an incredible tool, but it's a pretty difficult way to live. And I'm assuming that if they don't get a new kidney, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, a person could be on dialysis for a long time in terms of years. What have you seen? You can be on dialysis a long time, but unfortunately, it is a risk factor for not living a long time um, because, like I mentioned, while you're on dialysis, your risk of heart disease goes up. People tend to get infections. So it I, there have been people on dialysis for a very long time, many years, um, but for the most part, um, like I mentioned, it's it's difficult, and um, we'd love to have people consider transplant because transplant is both increases the quality of your life and also increases the length of your life, um, and that's why we advocate for transplant so highly. And so at what point then is a kidney transplant, the best treatment alternative. Well, how you obviously told us already in terms of the reasons for choosing a transplant, but I'm wondering about the evaluation process in terms of the patient, the the circumstances. When do you begin to think about kidney transplant and talk to the patient about that? So we love to see people early, if at all possible, because the best chance for kidney transplant is if we actually can transplant the patient before they ever need dialysis. So um, for us, it's great if patients get referred to us early on um, and we can talk to them about transplant options and they could be all ready to go when that time actually comes. So um, 
for transplant, there's two main options. There's deceased donor kidney transplant and there's living donor kidney transplant. So deceased donor means that you're waiting for someone who has passed away and there's a national list that you get put on. Your time on the list starts when you start dialysis. So, um, so the worst part about being on the deceased donor list is that you can wait a very long time for a kidney. So in our region, a lot of people wait five to eight years to get a kidney. So they may be on dialysis for quite a while waiting for a kidney. Um, the alternative is living donation. When someone finds someone who's very healthy and is willing to donate a kidney to them, and that's an amazing opportunity. One, living donor kidneys tend to work faster. Two is they tend to last longer. So I should mention here that kind of the worst part about kidney transplant is that kidneys don't last forever. So even when you get a kidney transplant, um, we hope that it gives you an awesome like 20 years out of the kidney, but it doesn't always. Um, unfortunately, some of the medications that we have to give to prevent the body from fighting off the kidney actually over time damage the kidney a little bit. Also, the person, if they had diabetes or high blood pressure, those diseases tend to wear at the kidney. So kidneys don't last forever. Um, but living donor kidneys tend to, on average, last a couple of years or a bunch of years longer than the deceased donor counterpart. Um, and the other great thing about living donor kidney is that we can do it right away. We can do it before someone ever needs dialysis. So if they have a donor who came forward and gets evaluated, then we just wait for the recipient to be ready and we do it before the person ever needs to go on dialysis. Those kidneys tend to last the longest as well. So we can schedule it. We can schedule it when the donor's available. We can schedule it when it's good for the recipient. We can schedule it when it's good for the surgeon. And so living donor tends to really be the best option if someone has that available. Is there also an evaluation process? All of those things, I would assume, are part of the evaluation process. But I was also wondering, just looking at the, the patient himself or herself, especially if it's an older patient, and also what the donor brings, something as simple as blood type or age or health condition. Is, is that part of that evaluation process as well in terms of figuring out the best match? Definitely. So let's split that into two parts. Let's talk about the recipient first, and then we'll talk about the donor, because both go through a very comprehensive workup. So the recipient... Um, usually will get referred in by their nephrologist and they'll come in and meet one of our nephrologists and surgeon. They meet a whole team of people. They meet a nutritionist, they meet a financial coordinator, they meet a social worker, they meet the doctors, they meet the coordinators. Um, and it's in an effort to learn all about transplant and for us to learn about the patient. So we really only want to go ahead with transplant if we think it's going to improve the person's life, right? We only want to do it if we're confident that they're going to make it through the surgery okay and that it's going to be a positive change for them. Um, so there are some things, and the biggest issue is you have to get through surgery and then you have to go on immunosuppression for the rest of your life. So when someone gets a kidney, it's seen as a foreign body inside the recipient. And the recipient will fight against that kidney unless we tell the body not to. So your body is amazing that it can recognize if something doesn't belong. 
um, and it will fight against it. So what we have to do is we have to give a person immunosuppression, which is medica- which is our medications that cut down the person's immune system so they don't fight against the kidney. Now, that also means that they're not going to fight against other foreign things like bacteria or virus quite as well. So it's always a balance. We're trying to um, control those medications so that they don't fight against the kidney, but they still fight against infections. So we need to make sure that the person is able to take that immunosuppression. So if someone has a cancer or a recent cancer, we cannot do a transplant usually because if we do the, your body controls the amount of cancer cells that are being formed and we would not want to release that control. So um, that's there. So there are certain things that are not gonna allow us to go ahead with transplant. A recent cancer is one, an infection or a recent bad infection is two, because again, like I just said, you wouldn't want to give someone immunosuppression medication if they're fighting against an infection. So they come to our center, we go through all these things, we do a very extensive history. Um, we do have a, a, a body mass index cutoff, it's called a BMI of 40, that's a, a calculation between your height and weight. Um, and um, we look at all of those things, we talk to the patient and try to decide if this is the right thing for them to go forward with. And hopefully the answer is yes at the end of our all of our meetings. Um, then that person is either gonna go on the deceased donor list, well, they're almost all gonna go on the deceased donor list, but we're also gonna start talking about living donation. And as time goes on, we're gonna see those patients regularly. Um, the only other thing I didn't mention is they have a lot of blood tests and they have a lot of other testing like chest x-ray, um, they have a stress echo to make sure, for some people, to make sure that their heart is functioning okay. Um, there's a whole list of tests. They have to have a colonoscopy. There's a whole list of tests that we're looking at just to make sure we think that it's safe for the person to undergo the surgery and safe for them to be treated afterwards. We're gonna take a short break right here. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Verbesey, who is the director Living Donor Kidney Transplantation at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital Transplant Institute. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are having a very interesting discussion about kidney disease, and now we're talking about kidney transplantation with Dr. Jennifer Verbesey, Director of the Living Donor Kidney Transplantation at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital Transplant Institute. And before the break, we were talking about the evaluation process for the recipient of a kidney transplant, but needless to say, the donor also likely has to go through an evaluation process. So Dr. Verbesey, tell us about that. What does the donor need to know to be a donor? 
So of course, our donors that come forward are really some of the most amazing people that we'll meet. I mean, they come forward to do this incredibly generous thing for their recipient. Um, you know, we say they're giving them the gift of life, and that's no exaggeration. Um, and so we're very, very careful with uh, our donor evaluation and donor safety is our number one priority. Um, so the first thing I always ask people is don't rule yourself as out as a donor. Let us talk to you and see because people sometimes say, oh, I can't do it because of X, Y, or Z, and that's not really a valid reason. So um, if you're interested, you know, the way you start the process is you get online and you fill out a questionnaire for Georgetown Living Donor, and that starts the process. So um, for living donors, the, there's a few um, guidelines. One is you have to be at least 18 years old. Um, we don't have an upper age limit. I will tell you that my oldest donor was 77. He donated to his 74-year-old wife, um, and they both did amazingly well. Obviously, we screen very carefully, and we're only going to take a kidney from a 77-year-old who's amazingly healthy, and he was. So, um, you know, they say age is just a number. I think that's true when it comes to being a kidney donor. Um, and then the, kid, the donors come in, and they have a full day of evaluation. Actually, I should say education and evaluation. So the day starts off with some education um, and then they again meet the whole team, a surgeon, a nephrologist, um, the coordinators, a social worker, and they learn about the process and we learn about them. Then the donors do undergo a amazing number of blood tests. That's what they often, if I ever hear a complaint, it's how much blood we've taken, but I promise it's safe. So they get a whole bunch of blood work done. They also get imaging of their kidneys so we can look at the anatomy um, and any other testing. They have to undergo cancer screening, which includes a colonoscopy, a mammogram, whatever's appropriate for that donor. And then we talk to them about the results and ask them if they feel comfortable going forward. Just as you mentioned about contraindications for the recipient, would there be certain reasons that someone would not be allowed to be a donor? What would you have to see in order to say, we can't use you as a donor? It all comes back to donor safety. So if we think that the person has risk factors for kidney disease in the future, then we're probably not going to let them, or we're going to encourage them not to be a donor. So um, some of these things, if someone has cancer in the recent past, also probably cannot be a donor. Um, we look at high blood pressure. If um, you're African-American and you have high blood pressure, we already know that there's a big, that's a big risk factor for kidney disease. So we may or may not think that you should go forward. We have a BMI cutoff of 35, so um, obesity can be a problem. And certainly anyone with prediabetes or diabetes is probably not going to be a good candidate. So we look through all those things and um, discuss it with the donor so that they understand what we're thinking and then decide from there if they should go forward. I was also wondering in terms of more practical things like gender or size of the kidney or something like that. I mean, could a, a woman get a man's kidney? Or I know that you also do transplants on or are associated with Children's Hospital. What about children? Uh, 
So it's more just gender and size and some of the more practical as well as the health conditions. I mean, luckily, hardly any of those factors come into play. So we give males female kidneys all the time. We give females male kidney all the time. We don't really worry about that. Um, people always, you know, joke and say, you know, is my voice going to be deeper? It doesn't really <laughs> affect you in any way other than you have a great functioning kidney. And so, and size tends to not really matter other than at the extreme. So um, I do living donor kidney transplants into one-year-olds, two-year-olds. And, and like I said, you have to be 18 to be a living donor. So I'm only putting adult kidneys into the babies. And, you know, again, we joke, we get our sterile shoehorn and we, we fit it in there one way or another. Um, you know, if the dad is 6'5 and, you know, 250, you know, maybe his kidney is not going to be the right kidney for a one-year-old. But those are really on the extremes. Most people, we don't have to worry about size or gender. Luckily, a kidney is a kidney, and uh, we can use them in, in whoever needs them. What good news that is. So you, uh -huh. <laughs> you had mentioned before about if one is waiting for a deceased donor but I just wanted to reiterate, so the average time, wait time for a new kidney from a living donor, it could be as soon as you could get the evaluation process done. What do you see more of, uh, the living donor or, or do people have to wait longer for a, a deceased kidney? Yeah, I mean, almost everybody waits a, a several years for a deceased kidney. So there is a long wait. And, you know, a lot can happen to people while they're waiting in those years. That's the problem. They're not like perfectly healthy people. They have medical problems. And so if you have to wait five to eight years, and I know your audience is older people, that can be a big problem. So if you're not presenting for transplant until you're, you know, 72, 74 years old, and you have to wait five to eight years for a kidney, you're, you're basically entering into the area where it's probably not going to happen. Um, usually over 80, there's no evidence that getting a transplant is going to increase the length of your life. And, um, you know, although there's some incredibly healthy 80-year-olds, it becomes more difficult for people to tolerate a surgery. So people that are in their early 70s, a lot of times we tell them that, um, really living donor is their only realistic option because if a living donor comes in, we could do the workup. That takes maybe a couple of weeks and we could schedule surgery. So um, it's a much, much, much faster process and avoids a lot of the problems that people might run into if they have to wait for many years to get a transplant. And I assume then that in not only the testing that you're talking about for the patient who's on, on the wait list, but that person then would have to continue in dialysis as well. Is, is that correct? Right. And, and like I mentioned, there's lots of things that can happen when you're on dialysis, like infections and heart problems. So a lot can happen in that five to eight years that changes your eligibility for, to get a transplant. From your standpoint as a transplant surgeon, how does a living donor transplant and a deceased donor transplant differ? Is one better than the other? We've talked already about the waiting time and that, but in terms of, of the longevity of the kidney, talk a little bit more about, especially for the deceased donor transplant and what that process might be as opposed to what you were just talking about in terms of the living donor transplant. 
Well, we always advocate for living donor if it's possible because those kidneys tend to work faster and live longer. So basically, um, if you think about it, when you get a deceased donor kidney, it's coming from someone who passed away. So it wasn't in the best environment probably for the last few hours or few days of that person's life. So um, it might not have seen the be- as good a blood flow or oxygen, whatever it was, it was in someone, unfortunately, who was dying. Um, the living donor kidney comes from someone who's super healthy and has great blood flow to the moment we take it out. And usually when we take it out, it goes immediately into the recipient. So there's a lot of reasons why we think living donor kidneys tend to last longer than their deceased donor counterparts. And that's why we're always trying to tell people, um, you know, if living donor is an option, that's the way to go. And part of that is because we have excellent outcomes with living donors. We do their surgery laparoscopically, so they get um, just small incisions. Laparoscopic is when we do it like with the video camera, and almost all the donors go home the next day. Um, So we have a lot of good data now for long-term follow-up of donors that shows they do very well. Um, And so that's why we're always encouraging recipients if possible. And I always tell recipients, don't you don't have to ask someone for a kidney. That's very difficult. It's not like asking someone for like, you know, a cup of sugar. So um, you can't, maybe you don't feel comfortable asking people. And so that's fine. What we try to tell people is just tell your story. Let people know what's going on with you. Um, You will be amazed at who comes forward sometimes. We've had teachers at other teachers in the school come forward. Lots and lots of people find donors at their churches or their temples. Um, it might be a neighbor who lives down the street. You you never know if sometimes people are very private with their stories and don't want to tell people what's happening. But I try to encourage people to share what's going on. First of all, you might find some commonality with other people. There's lots of people who are undergoing the same problems. Um, and also, you just never know who's going to come forward and want to help. So um, you don't have to ask, but tell so that people know what's going on. Very good advice, and I'm sure listeners are are paying attention to what you're saying. So you've mentioned a couple of uh, criteria about being a kidney donor. You said you could be older, but you have to be at least 18. Are there other criteria that people would need to be aware of in order to be a kidney donor? Explain to us what, what we need to know. So the first thing I want to tell you is a criteria you don't need to have because it's it's from the past. Um, I see a lot of people still advertise, you know, I need a O donor, I need an A donor, and that's referring to the blood type because you do have to get a kidney from a blood type compatible for the most part so that um, your body doesn't fight against it, like I mentioned before. But we, nowadays, we have a lot of mechanisms to use donors that are not the same blood type. And mostly, we use something called the Kidney Exchange Program. So we're part of the National Kidney Registry. It's called the NKR. And that's a national program that helps people if they come forward with a donor who may not be compatible. So um, I don't want people to ever write now that they need an A donor and they need a B donor. All you need is a donor, like a little, uh, not a capital A, like a lowercase a, any donor. Um, because if you come forward with a donor who doesn't match you, what we do is we put you into the exchange program, which is filled with other pairs who maybe didn't match initially. And then we do swaps and exchanges so that 
you still donate a kidney, your recipient still gets a great living donor kidney, but we just swap the kidneys in the middle so that they get a kidney that's compatible, that will last a long time. So any donor that comes forward for someone is a good donor. And it's very important that people understand that. Um, it used to be many years ago that there was no option if you came forward with a donor who was not compatible. But nowadays, that's hardly a barrier. We are extremely successful at um, getting uh, swaps and exchanges done so that everybody gets a successful transplant. Any other criteria? I mean, it sounds like anybody can really be a, a kidney donor then if they don't have the those certain conditions that you were talking about earlier and uh, any other criteria. I just want to make sure we covered that. Yeah, I mean, basically, you have to be a pretty healthy person. So we go over everything and we try to discover if there's any risk factors for kidney disease in the future. Um, also, any other diseases where you might like need to take medications that can affect your kidneys in the future. There's also they under, donors undergo a pretty com, uh, comprehensive psychosocial workup. We want to make sure that you're doing this without any pressure on you, that you're coming you know, on your own volition and you want to do this, that it's not going to impose a really har big hardship in your life, that you're making this decision at a good time in your life. Um, but we also have amazing programs to help donors now. So it used to be um, very difficult maybe for people because we asked them to basically take off work for three to four weeks if possible. And of course that can be very difficult for people, but through the NKR we have wage reimbursement programs. So um, you can get um, wage reimbursement for up to four to six weeks. Um, and so that really helps people um, who otherwise might not be able to donate because of some financial hardships. So we've come a long way in helping donors do this who are thinking about it and maybe had some roadblocks in the past. Well, and then to that point, you mentioned the National Kidney Registry. If, if someone is listening today and decided that they don't necessarily know anyone, but they want to be a, a kidney donor in connection with the paired kidney exchange. What would be the process for that individual to donate a kidney? What would you tell them to do? What do they need to look someplace in terms of on the website or what do they need to know? So that's, yeah, that's like a, a prize. If someone comes forward, they're called non-directed donors, or now they're called family voucher donors, which I'll explain to you. So that's basically someone coming forward who says they would like to donate and doesn't have a specific recipient in mind. And usually those people, the reason I said it's like a prize is usually those people can kick off a chain of transplants. So um, they don't have a recipient who might be difficult to transplant or hard to match. So they just can, they just go into the exchange and can kick off a whole number of transplants. So um, it's not like they're just giving one kidney. They really facilitate a couple of, or many transplants being done. So if that person is interested, um, all they have to do is go online. You could look in the National Kidney Registry. There's ways to um, show your interest through that. Or you could just go online and Google Georgetown Living Donor, and there's a big button saying, I would like to be a donor, and um, that starts the process. Um, I wanted to just mention family voucher because that's important. It used to be that someone's a non-directed, they just came forward and donated a kidney, and, and that was the end of it. It was just an incredible gift. But now through the NKR, if you would like to donate a kidney, you 
um, can designate yourself as a family voucher donor. And what that means is you designate five members of your family. They cannot have any type of kidney disease, disease at this time, but there's five members that if any one of the five needs a kidney in the future, they're going to be eligible for a living donor kidney. Because in the past, a lot of people said, I would love to donate, I'd love to consider doing this, but I'm worried, what if my child has kidney disease someday in the future? And usually the chance is incredibly low because donors tend to be extremely healthy and not have kidney disease in their family. Um, but now we have this mechanism where they can list five people in their family, including their children or other people. And if any one of them needs a kidney in the future, they'll go to the top of the list to get one. And once a person signs up again through this this website that you're talking about, and they said, I wanna be a kidney donor, would then there be somebody from the Transplant Institute at Georgetown University Hospital get in touch with them and start the process and bring them in? Or what happens next? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go online and you fill out our questionnaire on the Georgetown website, then we're going to get back to you within a few days, uh, hopefully a very short amount of time. And we're going to um, talk to you about how you want to proceed. Sometimes we get labs first. Sometimes we bring you in right away for the um, evaluation day. And so filling out that um, questionnaire kicks off the whole process, but it is absolutely not a commitment to do anything. It's a commitment to learn about what's involved. Um, it's not a commitment to do anything. So um, I highly recommend if anyone is interested in doing it, that they do it. Um, I also want to mention one other program that I think is especially pertinent to people that are, might be a little older, um, and that's the Advanced Donation Program. So the Advanced Donation Program started actually with a grandfather who wanted to donate to his grandson, but his grandson was not ready for a transplant. His kidney function was failing, but it wasn't low enough that he needed a transplant yet and probably wasn't going to need one for many years. So, um, but the grandfather, I don't know exactly, he was 70, something around there. Um, and so if the child didn't need a kidney for 10 years, then the grandfather would be probably too old to donate. So that's kind of gave birth to the advanced donation program. And basically he donated, the grandfather donated now and the grandson gets a voucher. It's like, I joke, it's like a Starbucks gift card. And so, um, in 10 years, when that kid needs a transplant, he can come to the National Kidney Registry and say, oh, here's my gift card. I'm ready for my kidney. It doesn't mean he's going to get a kidney the next day, but it means he's going to get um, one of the next kidneys that's available that is compatible with him. So the Advanced Donation Program has really taken off because it also allows people if a, if a wife wants to donate to a husband and they don't want to have surgery at the same time because then they would be recovering at the same time, the wife can donate or the husband, vice versa, obviously, but the wife can donate, let's say, in December and completely recover from their surgery. That person's kidney went to somebody else. And then the husband, maybe three or four months later, gets activated and he'll get the next kidney that's compatible with him. So they're not recovering at the same time. So the NKR has really been amazing in that it has come up with all kinds of mechanisms to help people donate um, and to make it so that it's a lot easier on them and their families. Wow. The process has uh, certainly advanced. I'm sort of reflecting on my days of my nursing, which was quite some time ago, and it has certainly 
provided many, many more opportunities now for kidney donors and recipients. And so to that point, I, I just a couple practical questions about the, the process for the donor. Uh, you mentioned about the providing a, a financial voucher for the individual if they had to take time off uh, from work. Explain how long is a living donor in the hospital? How long is the surgery? When can the donor return to work or school? What is the long-term risk? Kind of, if again, somebody wants to sign up, what, what do they expect in terms of, again, the practical life kind of consequences of doing so? So the donors have their surgery laparoscopic. So it's like I mentioned, it's minimally invasive with this with the video equipment, but they do get about a six centimeter incision where we have to actually take the kidney out through. And most donors will this will be in the hospital one to two nights, um, but almost everybody goes home the next day. When they wake up, they might feel a little pain, some bloating that lasts for a couple of days. By one week, they're gonna feel much better. By two weeks, almost back to normal. We ask people to stay out of work for three or four weeks if they can, just because they can be very tired for a while. And they can walk, they can jog, they can move around, they could do a lot of things. We just ask people not to do any lifting for six to eight weeks, because we want to avoid getting a hernia, okay? Um, long-term, people's sometimes people's blood pressure is a teeny bit higher after donation, so we keep an eye on that. And from then on, whenever we test their kidney numbers, they may look like they're outside of the normal range, but that's just because we took out one of their kidneys, not because they have kidney disease. Okay, so it's important for them and their primary care doctor to recognize that. They're gonna set at a new number. The lab thinks they have two kidneys, they only have one. So they're gonna set a new baseline for themselves and we're just gonna track them from there. Luckily, we have some very good follow-up studies that looked at donors now 10, 20 years out. And overall, donors do extremely well long-term with little to no impact on their life. There is a very small increase in the risk of um, kidney disease in the future. That is mainly in people who had a family history of kidney disease. And it's important to know if you happen to read these papers that the relative risk is a little higher. So you can say, oh, there's there's 10 times the risk, but the absolute risk is very, very low. So if the risk before was only, you know, 0.01% and it goes up to 0.1%, it's still, yes, that's a 10 times higher, but it's still a very, very small risk. And that those numbers are not the exact numbers, but that's similar to what they found. They found there is an increased risk, but the absolute risk of having kidney disease after donation is still very, very low. And the conclusions from all those studies were that they would still advocate and recommend highly that if people are considering donation, that they go through with it. Well, and that certainly sounds like very good news. I didn't quite hear, how long is the actual surgical part of the, as the transfer from the the uh, the donor to the recipient? Is that what, in terms of the surgery time? Yeah. The donor takes usually about three or four hours, um, if you include all the anesthesia time and everything like that. And the recipient usually is about the same. Um, we sometimes have them, if, if we're giving a do- kidney directly, we have them in side-by-side ORs. So the kidney comes out of the donor. We literally walk it across the hall and put it right in. Um, if we're doing an exchange, a lot of times the kidneys will fly from one hospital to another. 
Um, many studies have shown those still have comparable and outstanding results. Um, so both surgeries, like I said, are usually about anywhere between three and five hours. Okay. And then since we've talked already about the, the follow-up in so far as the donor, what about the recipient after the transplant surgery? How long will the recipient stay in the hospital? And talk a little bit about uh, his or her recovery. So one last sentence about the donor, just so everyone knows, they do go home the next day and then they do, they have mandatory follow-up with us at one week, six months, one year, and two years. And at those, we just see them, make sure they're doing okay, and also um, get some basic labs. Um, so their follow-up is pretty routine and hopefully very easy. <clears throat> um, for the recipient, it is a little more, it's significantly more intensive um, because we're following to see how the kidney is doing. And like I mentioned, a lot of the management after is dealing with the immunosuppression medications. So the recipient is usually in the hospital anywhere between three and five days after surgery. Um, during that time, we're making sure that the kidney starts to function. Sometimes if they get a deceased donor kidney, it can um, take a lot longer for the kidney to function just because the kidney might have had a little bit of damage um, in the person that was dying, unfortunately. Um, but we expect that to recover. Um, but it can take a couple of days to even a couple of weeks for that to happen. So they're in the hospital usually between three and five days as we try to sort out how the kidney's doing. And also we're starting their immunosuppression and we're checking blood levels so that we're adjusting the amount of immunosuppression medication they're taking. Once they get home, the recipients have to come back to clinic twice a week for the first month. So it is, you know, pretty intensive. They need someone to drive them twice a week, um, but it's, um, very well organized, and that way we really can follow very closely someone's kidney function and adjust the medications as needed. And then as soon as we see that they're doing well, we can start spacing it out to once a week, then once every other week, then once a month, etc. Um, but there's a lot of contact with the transplant department after surgery, and um, we try to make sure beforehand that the all recipients understand this and that they have a really good plan for how they're going to get to the um, hospital for their follow-up and what kind of support they're going to have around them. Okay, last question, 20 seconds. Best resources for kidney disease and transplantation? Oh, I would look online at the Georgetown transplant site. Um, you also could look at the National Kidney Registry. They have a lot of information. And the NKF, the National Kidney Foundation, they also have a lot of information. Um, I think the internet is rich with resources. I would definitely recommend that people go to one of these, you know, big organizations like the NKR, the NKF, or Georgetown Transplant. There's also a lot of, you know, bad information on the internet. So stay away from those uh, non-verifiable sites if I if I could dare to recommend that. Um, but there's a lot of good things that you could read on the internet that help people care for their kidneys as they start to discover that they ha might have some problems um, and also a lot of resources to understand transplant. Okay. What a great program here. So much good information. And I really want to thank you, Dr. Jennifer Verbesey, Director of Living Donor Kidney Transplantation at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital Transplant Institute. And to learn more about Aging Matters, visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. 
at that site, of course, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio and TV show content. And of course, log on to the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. And more information about that company can be found at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.